Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, the history of the disc jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. This week's episode focuses on the emergence of DJs as recording artists in their own right, people like the KLF. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Let it roll, or should I say techno roll? I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined by Ryan Harkness to continue our discussion of Last Night, A DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. And today we're moving on to one of their sort of conceptual chapters, Artist, question mark, in which they struggle with the concept, not struggle really, but just explain how DJs became artists, both as producers and recording artists in their own right. Ryan, general thoughts on this chapter. Uh, I'm glad they finally uh, ditched the, uh, the the genre specific uh, format because it was really starting to get uh, it was really starting to not make a lot of a lot of sense because everything was just morphing into everything else. You couldn't just sit on a cha- on techno for an entire chapter because by the end of it, it wasn't techno anymore. So now now they've just moved on from that. They're talking about. Uh, the DJs getting into the production booth and starting to change things there. And uh, I think it, it makes the lines a lot clearer, even if we do end up doing a little bit of a rehash of, of some stuff from the earlier chapters. Yeah, indeed. And they start this chapter or they precede this chapter with a quote from two characters that are going to be big figures in our conversation today. And I'm talking about the Kia, the KLF, the Copyright Liberation Front, Jimmy Cotty and Bill Drummond. Um, and this is a quote probably from Drummond. So 1988 saw the latest would-be revolution happen in pop music. The DJ with his pair of techniques and a box of records can make it to the top with a little help from a sample machine, squiggly bass line, and beatbox. Yet again, this was interpreted as the masses finally liberating the means of making music from all the undesirables. So tongue-in-cheek, cynical, 
classic KLF communique, but does kind of get to the truth of the matter. Yeah, I mean, they, they mentioned the fact that basically from 1988 onwards, the the doors have been blown wide open. The record labels are, the major record labels are, are dinosaurs now in that they're slow moving and, and slow to catch a trend. And anybody who's quick on their feet and, uh, you know, with a little bit of knowledge can sneak in there and get a number one hit. And uh, yeah, they literally wrote the book on it. So indeed, indeed. And we'll be going back to that a bit. And, and they also go back and sort of reprise some of the general themes of the book. And one of the key ones, well, that, let's, let's, let me give you a quote. They, they, they go through several of the genres and the DJ's influence. It says, so the DJ germinated rhythm and blues. He christened and disseminated rock and roll. He gave shape to reggae, and he was the dazzling architect of the disco revolution. And then from disco's hardy rootstock, I love that, hardy rootstock, he single-handedly bred hip-hop, house, garage, techno, and high energy, not to mention all of their offshoots and hybrids. But what else did he do? I mean, what else is there to do? Make your own records, I guess. And then it says the DJ set off towards his current position as the most powerful creative force in popular music. And I'm assuming they wrote that in 99, maybe in 2014 when they did the update. Is that still true today? Well, I mean, there's a... uh... I think maybe at the time it's because the DJ understood the dance floor so much. So he was a unique, he had a unique perspective coming into the recording studio that maybe a lot of producers at the time didn't. But now obviously uh, you've got a ton of producers who, you know, everything that the DJ knows is old hat to them. So I think, you know, the lines have blurred a lot more now. And, uh, and, and, you know, there's a lot of producers who DJ not because, you know, it's a, it's a chicken and egg thing. They, they DJ not because they're DJ centric, but because that's just another way for them to make money off their name. So, you know, at this point now, the lines are being blurred too much, but at the time uh, you can't deny these guys were coming in and, uh, and shaking things up, putting the right kinds of drums on things and basically taking all that feedback that they had from the audience that no one else had and uh, incorporating it into uh, studio work. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's the thing they hone in on and repeat and repeat is that the DJ had a simple mission, which was make them dance. And then he had a laboratory with subjects who responded when when he succeeded. So, you know, the DJ sort of had the finger on the pulse. But at this point in time, you know, after we've survived the Paris Hilton and celebrity DJ era and everything, and also these giant festivals, you know, when EDM took over the pop world, by conquering America finally around 2015 or so, it changed from, you know, it's not sweaty discos anymore. Now it's these massive festivals, and I don't really see people dancing. You see people waving their arms in the air in massive crowds. So it's, um, I'm very curious to know, like, what's the current cutting edge and where people are doing innovative dances and if DJs are still part of that. But we will hopefully live to find out in time. And then they also talk about the conceptual advances that were represented by hip hop and house. And they sum it up by saying that hip hop fostered sampling patchwork music from a multitude of sources. And they love using the term stealing. And I think that that represents a Britishness that, that the Brits, especially KLF really made hay with this concept of sampling as stealing and flouting copyright law. And with KLF, it's always hard to tell, you know, are they making a point here or are they just 
yanking our chain. And, you know, they they also bury the lead in that um, they talk about KLF, but they don't really talk about how massively successful they were or how that they abandoned the music biz at the peak of their fame, only to come back later and burn a million pounds in this, or maybe they didn't, in this massive um, stunt. So... Yeah, they kind of they kind of miss some of the, uh, the the finer point of of who the KLF are, and I think it's probably because again, they weren't DJs, so you can't you know there, there's there's a number of areas where they kind of skitter over over some interesting stuff because when you when you look at it uh, from that litmus test, is this or is this not DJ related? The KLF never touched a turntable. It's very true, and and you know Bill Drummond is a music biz guy. He was the manager of Echo and the Bunnymen, and he was an A&R exec, exec with Warner's WAE, and had um, pushed a band called The Brilliant, or a group called The Brilliant, which w- featured Jimmy Cotty in it, and had uh, Saw, Stock Aikman, Waterman producing it. And you know they did everything they could in the mid-80s to cook a hit and make this group, The Brilliant, a hit, and it totally flopped. And Saw, for all their success, you know, the most successful production team in history, occasionally whiffed. And The Brilliant was definitely one of their whiffs. The music press turned on them, and Bill Drummond, out of that, leaves the music industry and you know, supposedly has these visions for albums. They don't talk about the solo album he made before he starts the chain of of records that would ultimately be known as the KLF. But just a total character and a freak. Um, And and kind of somebody who breaks down, uh, you know, how everything is a remix and how, uh, you know, there's no unknown notes in the scale. There's no unknown chords. Blues was made off of three chords, basically run the same way in different tempos. And, you know, obviously, you know, you, you can boil it down to its basics and you realize that everything's being written. But of course, the variation that you can put on it is, is endless, which is why music continues to be so uh, fascinating, endlessly creative. But at the same time, when you boil it down, it's the same thing. And they were they made it very clear. You don't have to kill yourself to create something original. Just take two or three hits, lift some key elements from them paste them together bam potential number one hit absolutely and they go through this whole history of remixing and and song editing but let's go ahead and hear our first song and this is kind of a jump forward in time this is from 1996 this is armin van helden's remix of tori amos's professional widow and what they're trying to do here is illustrate how removed the alt, the remix would get from the source material by this point in time. So here's Armin Van Helton totally annihilating Tori Amos's professional widow. That was Armin Van Helden taking a very, very free hand with his remix of Tori Amos's Professional Widow. Well, let's backtrack a little bit and talk about how we get there. Um, 
they go through this whole history, and, and I love dropping this name because I've we've covered Bing Crosby on the show. He's a massively important figure, and one of his many innovations was his insistence on pre-taping his radio show. Before Bing did this after World War II, all radio shows were pretty much live. They would occasionally have transcripts on record players, on, on shellac, but they didn't have reel-to-reel tape until they took it from the Nazis in World yeah, War II. Yeah, that's an interesting footnote. I never realized. <laughs> they, 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 they really lay out the fact that, oh, reel-to-reel is Nazi tech. And it's like, man, uh, they get us to the moon and they invent reel-to-reel. Exactly. And jet planes. So, you know, um, yeah, old Adolf Hitler and the, and the crew, very creative in their, in their madness. And so reel-to-reel magnetic tape was invented by the Nazis, captured by American soldiers in World War II, brought home. And Jack Mullen, who is Bing Crosby's uh, pro- producer and engineer on the Bing Crosby show, was the first guy to do tape splicing. So it's, you can't edit a shellac record. It's, it's there. It's frozen in wax. But with magnetic tape, snip, snip. There goes that two-second uh, and you know, tape it back together. Nobody's any the wiser, and so a very important step. Then the next step they identify is Pierre Schaefer and De- Delia Derbyshire, and we talked about them on the show before on my episode with David Stubbs. They were both playing with tape loops in the '50s. Delia is best known for the Doctor Who theme, uh, which is this amazingly ahead of its time uh, electronic tune and it's going to come back because the klf gets one of their big hits by sampling part of that and combining it with the gary glitter song and a sweet song uh for their first number one even before they're the klf then tape looping of course implemented by the beatles and songs like tomorrow never knows in the 60s brings it to a massive massive audience but it's really in jamaica and again they're consistently reinforcing this is why they made such a big to-do about Jamaica at the beginning of the book because it's important because it was so innovative and the DJs and producers in the 60s and 70s were dropping dub plates they were already doing these remixes playing them for the sound systems because that way they would have a unique record that none of the other sound systems had then and it was get, interesting because they they had uh like it was uh, with, with Jamaican with the Jamaican musicians, uh, the, the producer would put together the band and then would lay down the tracks and record everything. And then he would sit there at the mixing board and he would release several different versions of, of the same song or with the same musical elements. And it's like these guys were the first to lean into the idea that there was more than one way to mix a song, which is. You know, and and it, it took a long time for that to catch on. And it's still, you know, it's crazy to me how little of this happens. Like Nate being a historian of rock and roll, how often do did we see one song come off the mixing board in more than one way, like two ways or heaven forbid, like three ways? Very rarely. What you would see is when, you know, back in the day, it was song based rather than performer based. So if somebody had a hit version of a song or if a new song came out, multiple people would record it. And usually they would kind of copy the hit arrangement. But sometimes you would get these radical rearrangements um, and different versions. You know, Count Basie and Lawrence Welk might do the same song. This actually happened. And they would have radically different arrangements because they were radically different bands. But you didn't see it treated as something totally fungible and that one person could sit around and make multiple versions of the same song until you get, um, you know, the geniuses in Jamaica. And I don't know that they were that genius. There were definitely some geniuses, Scratch Perry, King Tubby, others, but they just had a market demand for multiple 
versions of tunes for as many new tunes as they could get and new sounds and a limited budget, limited time in the studio. So, you know, if you had a great bass line, a great drum lick, well, let's recycle that and bring yeah, in a different kind of singer. Necessity being the, uh, the mother of all innovation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then you get to disco in the seventies and you get people like Tom Moulton that we talked about in the disco episode, who's making these tape remixes. And then Walter Gibbons, who's a turntablist, an early turntablist who's remixing live in the club, extending the brakes, making it hotter for his dance floor. And these guys start putting out records. If Tom Moulton's the first one to do an official remix 12-inch. And pretty soon these guys are actually being brought into the studio, given the source tape so that they can really rearrange stuff. But still for a long period of time, they're only working with the component parts that they have on tape. And it's not until the 80s that you see them just adding totally new elements. And then pretty soon, they might even just keep the vocal and replace everything else, replace that bass line with a different bass line, put in yeah. a drum machine instead of a live drummer. Go ahead. Uh, in the 80s, like if you take a look at the early 80s, like Madonna singles, or I guess now the, the compilations of the Madonna singles from, from that era, there's, there's, you know, 10 different versions, which is exciting. But then you look closer and 90 percent of them are like radio edits, extended radio edit, seven inch version, 12 inch version, Japanese 12 inch extended version. Uh, maybe you get a dub version, which is just there for a radio jock to talk over. And once in a blue moon, you'll get a club mix with more upfront drums. But for the most part, these were just different lengths of songs for different purposes it was uh you know they'd, they'd extend it out a little bit so that for for the club or they'd really tighten it up for the radio and that was really all you were getting yeah and and as somebody who bought a lot of music in this period i was almost always pissed off when i got a 12 inch and and usually avoided it part of it because i'm a rockist you know and was into the album and the art of the album and everything but also just this feeling of being ripped off like i paid just as much for this as an album and it's one song and there's really only two different versions of it and the rest of them yeah like you're saying are just different links so it was it was a tad um well, it hit it hit the market. It did what it needed to do, and it was just it was just a different market that I didn't get at the time. And also, twelve inches sounds so fat. Um, you know, that's that's the thing. Those grooves are deep, and the bass is super loud and heavy. And and that's why groups like PLL PIL Johnny Rotten's group would put out albums just on twelve inch, and you know later come along follow it up with a regular thirty three uh, RPM version instead of the forty five RPM twelve inch. But let's play our next song, and we'll talk about um, some of the innovations that start happening in the late 80s when people who aren't DJs get their hands on samplers and figure out that they could replicate the things that the turntablists have been doing in hip-hop. And this is Double D and Steinsky's Lesson 3. The torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans. Lesson 3. Mars needs women. 
And that was Double D and Steinsky's Lesson 3. And we'll come back and tell their story uh, a bit more in a little while when it fits. But the main point of that is that these guys triggered an explosion in Britain. Because unlike Grandmaster Flash, who's manually cutting between different records and is clearly a virtuoso musician, I mean... Even people who think, oh, he's just playing a record. If you watch Grandmaster Flash for any length of time and you try to do it, it's obvious this is not easy. This takes a great deal of skill and practice. But Double D and Steinsky were doing this with tape machines at home, and a ton of Brits figured out, aha, I can do this. Well, let's get back to our narrative, though, and, and talk about the remix. And so there's a period when, even from the beginning, Tom Moulton is getting pushback from some of the bands he's remixing because his remix will outshine the original version and and there's a lot of jealousy and and competition but even then the first generation of disco remixers didn't get top billing and sometimes they didn't even get any credit on the records but then the next generation and you mentioned the early madonna records jelly bean bonita is one of the producers on those he's a, a big enough star to get his own major label deal as an artist, not just a behind the scenes producer like in the Phil Spector days, but as an artist and a front person, people billing on a remix, the record label's actually pissed. So it takes a while for people to get this concept through their head. And then it's Todd Terry, we've talked about a little bit, who's the hip house guy. He's the guy who who combined hip hop and house music. And um Tunes, you know, like Royal House, Can You Party, his remix was bigger than the original, and he becomes a star DJ in his own right, even though he really wasn't known as a club DJ, but he gets these lucrative gigs in Britain because they're seeing his name on all these records. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, it makes sense, especially when labels are trying to hit those multiple markets. If you've got a pop song, but you want the house heads to be into it, David Morales, you know, get a David Morales remix. Jungle, call up LTJ Bukem. Hip hop, call Diddy or whatever he's calling himself. You know, this isn't anything new. Uh, Back in the garage days, all of the tracks that we were listening to for research for this show, you look at the label and Larry Levin, there's always a Larry Levin, Larry Levon mix on there just so that they can put his name on the record just so it will sell way more units because it's like the seal of approval and for a lot of these different genres there was always that hot guy at the time that you could put put their name on the record and uh you know i was you you kind of question whether or not the labels even really give too much a damn past the point of of being able to to try to grab or enter that market yeah, and there's this wave in the early 90s where the major labels noticed this, and they signed Frankie Knuckles, the pioneer of house in Chicago, Blaze, Little Louie, uh, to major labels with a bunch of ballyhoo. And the only ones who really pay off is this amalgamation of David Cole and Robert Clavellis, the CNC Music Factory. And we, we talked about um, and now Soul to Soul last time, and, and there's this and KLF is going to tap this vein as well. There's this opportunity in the pop market in the late 80s, early 90s for these sort of acts that are kind of producers in the lab. They're kind of house music. It's kind of hip hop. You always have a rapper. You tend to have a dance beat. And CNC Music Factory and, you know, Rob Bass, uh, and others really perfected this formula to massive success. And CNC, I think they could have spent a little more time on, but again, they're not club DJs. So I get, you know, why they don't talk about it that much, but then 
the the major labels back away from DJs after after the failure of everybody except CNC Music Factory. But then by 1993, there's a whole album where Alexander Coe, aka Sasha, puts out the remixes, and he's not the original artist on any of them, but he's the artist on the album. And now it, it becomes a whole genre by the late 90s of DJs um, putting together remix and sometimes just dance sets that they had done. And this becomes a, a market. And it's something that DJs have been trying to get the record labels to do since the 70s. And it was only in the 90s that the DJs got enough marquee value uh, for them to get the, the, the record labels to back them on that. And it's a, always interesting to me how uh, when we talk about, you know, the record labels declaring everybody, but, you know, a couple of specific artists to be failures and the entire genre to be a waste of time. And I, I find that funny. And I think when it comes to dance music and the dance scene, I think it's because the entire scene is too decentralized. There's too many artists making too much music on too many different independent labels that you can't just pluck one out and, 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 and present them to the public and expect it to do these, these numbers because, it's a bunch of different people making a bunch of tiny sales and the, the overall scene becoming this big behemoth. So the only failure, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to the, 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 the major, the major labels was their inability to vampirize like the entire scene and, and co-opt it and centralize it into these, a couple of, of bands that they can put for or, or artists that they can put forward and say, here we go and, and make, you know, you know, to go triple platinum or whatever they're hoping for before it becomes taken seriously. Yeah, and, and I think a big part of the difficulty they had was they needed stars or thought they needed stars and personalities that they could market. They needed a recognizable space in the videos and on the album covers. They wanted that Elvis Presley model. And, you know, for the most part, dance music in this era was pretty faceless. It was white label, 12 inches, and and a tiny minority of the people who heard the record saw the DJs in the clubs and, and actually knew who they were. I mean, they were becoming draw, but it was not this iconographic star system that would ultimately kind of be perfected people like moby and the chemical brothers etc and klf is a big part of this as well become the brand names and become the stars and the personalities that get the magazine coverage as the 90s develop but the big step that they identify and 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 we talked about this last time and kind of in the last two chapters that the brits had been the world's best dance music connoisseurs since the 60s. They they worshipped black American artists. They knew they were memorizing what said on the record labels. They knew who the producers were, the songwriters, the musicians. They loved this stuff, but genres like Northern Soul and jazz funk were a way to curate and share their love of this music, but they weren't really innovating until the synthesizers and the samplers come along and get cheap enough. You know, Stock Aikman Waterman had a big budget and a big 48-track studio and these massive expensive synthesizers. Just a few years later, people can record stuff in their house with very cheap samplers and synthesizers and then the revolution is on. So, you know, once they had seen hip-hop and house succeed and they realized how easy it was to do british djs were just off and running and, and they, they talk about trevor horn um who was the guy in the buggles video killed the radio star then he's a member of yes and then he's got a group in the 80s called the art of noise who did a track called close to the edit in 1984 
that's a precursor of this kind of stuff. But they're using one of these, you know, $100,000 Fairlight synthesizers that's amazingly limited by today's standards. I mean, I think a Apple Watch probably has more computing power than those Fairlight synthesizers did. Oh, but, by, oh, by by dozens and or by you know by squares or, or triples or whatever. Yeah, or like, so magnitude, much. and uh, and and you know, and you've also got you know Tony Prince, who's a Radio Luxembourg DJ, who starts the Disco Mix Club. That ultimately this is going to become the forum. Their annual contest is going to become the forum for turntablists, and so hip hop people kind of take over the DMC, but. He's putting out these remix records for promotional purposes only. And since they're not selling them, but they're getting them out to DJs all around the world, they kind of get around some of the copyright and the licensing limits. But it's really the guys we played a little earlier, Double D and Steinsky, who is 30-something copywriter, ad copywriter Steve Stein, and his sound engineer buddy, Douglas DeFranco, Double D, who enter a contest that Tommy Boy is having to do some remixing. And these guys are hip-hop fans, but the kind of guys, like most of us, who look at scratching and go, wow, that's cool, that looks hard, I'm not going to try to do that. But they get their hands on some four tracks and start doing the things that the early house DJs were doing with reel-to-reel and and cut-ups, put out lesson one, and win the contest. And nobody is more shocked than them. They put out multiple tracks, and let's hear from our sponsor, and we'll come back and talk about the impact that these records by Double D and Steinsky's had in Britain. And so Double D and Steinsky is, again, one of these moments that comes up multiple times in this episode where they say they're doing lessons. Lesson one was their first record. Lesson three was the one we played, and people like Jonathan Moore and Matt Black who are a couple of DJs that form the group Cold Cut, they take it literally as lessons. Yeah, it's and, interesting. I'm kind of wondering whether or not when they called it lesson one, it was less, if, if it was lessons in, in, in hear these songs, these here are the, are the, are the songs. Like the whole thing kind of starts almost like a mega mix. And this is, this is where they put the mega mix on steroids. Like you had the, the book kind of covers in the past. There's some people who are making some Beatles mega mixes and stuff like that. And then these guys come and they, and it's almost starts, sounds like a mega mix at first. And then they cut it up so severely that it gets really intense. So you could take it as a lesson in the history of hip hop because there's all the key tracks in there. Or you could take it as a lesson in sample based construction, which is what Cold Cut did. Absolutely. And they put out the track, Say Kids, What Time Is It? in 1987. That's the first UK sample built record, but it's not the last. And very quickly, um, Dave Durrell who's a London DJ, he partners with guitarist Martin Young from the band Colorbox, and they make a 15-second track for MTV. And MTV at this period is, and we talked about this over and over again, but it's just enormously important, both in the UK and in the US and all around the world, really. There's like a musical monoculture, and MTV is the one radio station for the world. And they were doing a ton of innovative stuff with tracks between the videos and and introducing the ads and introducing their shows and they were really giving people free reign and a whole lot of avant techniques that had been avant-garde when classical composers had done them from the 40s to the 60s and when avant-garde uh, filmmakers and composers had been doing them in the 60s 
And this stuff gets put on MTV and suddenly becomes very commercialized. They figure out how to do it, and it's all about the context. And, and Cold Cut is one of these groups that capitalizes on that, but they want to do more. And so um, these guys, Dorel and Young, take the next step. They, they follow the, the template that Cold Cut has used, which they got from Double D and Steinsky, and they formed this group Mars, M slash A slash R slash R slash S, with a scratch DJ, CJ McIntosh, using Cold Cut as their model, and then they remix, um, well, they make this the sample record that pump up the volume, that is this massive hit all around the world, and then they just go away. They, they kill that name Mars and go back to being cold cut. And then immediately people are picking it up. You know, Eric B and Rakim famously didn't like it. Um, but cold cut then does a remix of paid in full by Eric B and Rakim based on pump up the volume using most of the same samples. And that's a massive hit in the U S. So this is when the sample stuff begins to penetrate. Even a yokel like myself in Borger, Texas in 1987, 88, I could not miss this. I knew about Eric B. and Rakim. I was into hip hop, but I did not know what the hell this Mars stuff and this pump up the volume thing was. But I certainly didn't change the channel when it came on MTV. Yeah, pump up the volume was one of those first tracks that when I was a kid, I heard it and I was like, what the hell is this? It was so different sounding and it got so big. So uh, it has like a lot of influence, I, I feel. And I I sometimes ignore the sample bass uh, element of it because to me, it's like kind of the the the, the weird 808 drums and uh, and and, and the kind of like robotic xylophone that got in there that really that really gets me going but the samples in it are, are pretty wild too and the video obviously was very important with all of the the uh, the the NASA stuff linked up with the NASA samples too yeah absolutely and and I'm being reminded once again I'm mispronouncing Rakim it's not Rakim it's Rakim but I've been saying it wrong for 35 years I don't know that I'm going to switch now maybe if I get to meet him in person I'll be intimidated enough to say it right so apologies for that but so there's then this whole wave of British hit singles in this formula bomb the bass with beat this Suxpress with theme from Suxpress, get it, Suxpress, a guy called Gerald with Voodoo Ray, 808 state, specific state, uh, bang the party, release your body, bang, bang your mind, baby Ford with Uchi Kuchi, uh, which, and then the, the infamous D-Mob, we call it Acid, which is one of these records that Brewster and Broughton can't help but shit on, but it's a historical record. I don't know that critical, and uh, you know, I don't know what the point in, in pointing out that we call it Acid is a terrible record. I mean, it is what it is, and it was massively successful. Maybe it's kind of one of those things where it was it was such a uh, an un you, you couldn't escape it, and you had to hear it all over the place. So everybody kind of craps on it. It's kind of like the Macarena. We all went through it, and we all didn't like it. You you can <laughs> you can you can put it in context if you want. I mean, the the, the thing I love about we call it Acid is that it uh, caused the BBC to basically ban any song that said the word acid off of all of their stations so that's that's how bad it, it was and it's when you listen to it it is an obnoxious a purposefully obnoxious track uh so I, I i think i can get it if you had to if you had to go through you know however many weeks that was you know getting a lot of radio play i i guess i understand yeah and this is also a period 
when having a hit record meant everybody had to hear it. I mean, my mom was going to hear it at age 60 something. It was on the radio. It was on TV. It was being played uh, out in public in a way that hit records have not really over the last 15 or 20 years. It's amazing how much more impact the hit record could have culturally in the early 90s. So these records were ubiquitous everybody knew this stuff was happening and and so we talked about klf and this is when bill drummond and jimmy cotty get together they're watching this stuff happen and even though bill drummond has sworn off the music business he gets a vision and he just has to implement it and his first vehicle is jams justified ancients of moo moo that's ultimately going to become klf the copyright liberation front and they put out just a ton of records, several of which, especially the early KLF, they're performance art pieces as much as they are records and or political statements. I mean, they you know they call themselves the Copyright Liberation Front, and they meant it because the, the first thing they do is put out a song called All You Need Is Love, opening with a sample of the Beatles song of the same name. They know that they're picking on the most deep-pocketed, most litigious artist out there. Like, you know, if you, even today, if, if you post something, a Beatles video on YouTube, just it's a countdown until it gets taken down. These guys have an army of minions and they want to control their music. And KLF went right after them and ultimately had to put out a different version of the single with minimizing uh, the, the Beatles' um, references all over it and this is the song that became their first massive massive number one hit and this is them as the the time lords and the premise was that a time traveling ford car was the mastermind behind this song and this is called doctrine the tardis did i say that right the tardis i think so yeah okay it's the doctor who reference and they take the doctor who theme and a gary glitters rock and roll part one Boom, put them together, and you've got the Time Lords doing Doctor and the TARDIS. was the time lords aka the klf aka um drummond and cotty and this is just the perfect manufactured hit i mean the story is that they were trying to make a serious dance record and cotty's playing with some beats and they and drummond keeps saying no that's a glitter beat that's too glam that's you know sounds like gary glitter from the early 70s and they have two miserable days in the studio where they're struggling with this thing and finally they just say screw it let's just go with it. And they make the cheesiest thing that they can possibly make. And even dig up Gary Glitter, who was not yet a disgraced, exposed pedophile. He was then sort of a beloved uh, semi-retired superstar in the 90s. And this thing becomes a massive, massive number one hit single in Britain. 
Yeah, and they, let's let's make it clear they didn't ask Gary Glitter for any permission. They just went and they did it, and then they had to give a a, a large chunk of their their licensing out to Gary Glitter because the song is such a blatant uh, ripoff. And it's it's really the formula that they that they kind of lay out in a book they call the Manual, which is like the guide to making a number one hit record. And uh, the best way to explain that book is it's like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but it's for creating number one hits. And it's cheeky and it's kind of cynical, but beyond the humor that's cooked into every paragraph, there really is a step by step guide on how to make number one hits. And it basically boils down to quit your band, sell your instruments, listen to top of the pops religiously so you can understand what what's hot. Go through the top 10 charts and find yourself a groove to steal and then steal a melody from a different song and then think up a chorus that, you know, the punters can sing at the top of their lungs at 2 a.m. in the morning. And then you, you take these three or four elements and you book a studio and you go into the studio and you have the engineer do the hard work of sticking it all together and then you walk out with a potential number one hit. And there was actually a group that that followed their instructions and 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 had a number one hit. I think it was a Swiss group. But yeah, so it's KLF is a really unique project that is a musical entity and a performance art piece, and then this meta commentary on the music business. And they just kept being massively successful and never stopped rubbing it in the face of the British music business that they were taking the piss and not taking this seriously at all. And their formula was so brilliant for the time that in 1991, they're the most successful production team on earth. It's, it's brilliant. It's one of the best art projects of all time. I mean, yeah, it's hard to over it's, I mean, it's easy to overlook how wildly successful they were because in 1992 they just went and deleted their entire catalog like they own the licensing and the publishing rights for it which is one of the smart things that they tell you to do in the manual is keep own your music but you know they use that ownership to just delete their entire catalog and they specifically said it's going to be gone for 23 years Uh, they went to an island and they burned a a million British pounds and then disappeared for those 23 years. And in 2017, boom, they reappeared, put the music back up on Spotify. But at this point, it's like, you know, you go on there and you've got a a very small repertoire of songs that sound kind of dated. And it's very hard to understand that, uh, you know, these guys even get credited sometimes as being, you know, the granddaddies of, of, of all trance music because they did uh, what time is love, which is, Eh, pretty trancy it's you know it's difficult with that cnc music factory uh big pop house sound to kind of figure out where where one genre ends and another begins and what's just proto stuff but you know they they have a they have a legitimate claim to to being the forefathers of some of the biggest genres and they were just taking the piss yeah but when you listen to music especially you know they they tended to alternate sort of serious underground dance tracks with these tongue in cheek pop hit versions of it. Like they would basically make beats, put them out to the dance clubs, and those hold up really well. Like one of the documentaries I was watching about him, one of the music writers would just be merciless about things like Doctor and the TARDIS. You know, this is a shite record. This is garbage. But, you know, it was fun at the time. But then he's like, when he talks about their dance music records, he's like, still one of my favorite records to this day. So Cotty was very talented musically. And they really just perfected the formula. I mean, they would make these these beats that were cool in the clubs. 
And then when it was time to go pop, you know, bring in that CNC music formula factory and same thing that Solo Solo done. You know, you get a basic house beat, you throw in a rapper, um, everybody's good looking in the video. You spend a lot of money on the video and just perfected the formula. And I'm also fascinated by the way they disappeared their stuff because they, they forewent millions of dollars in revenue. I mean, if they had left that stuff in print throughout the 90s, you know, that was the height of the CD era when people were paying $20, you know, buy a CD just to get one song. And, and they, they walked away from capitalizing on, on a massive market for their work. And then eventually do let it back. But now in, in our era, when groups like Power Bottom or the Lost Prophets and others that have disgraced themselves in one way or another, or even in the case of Power Bottom, maybe allegedly disgraced themselves, like that one is, is a really unclear case. There's a whole record label out of California that withdrew their whole catalog because, again, of you know Me Too type issues and misbehavior. And as a music historian, that really gives me the heebie-jeebies. Like the last thing I want is for artists to be erased, just, you know, and I, I totally understand it's the right of these companies not to put out stuff they don't want to be associated with. And like in the case of the Lost Prophets, where the guy's just this heinous pedophile, like I, of course, I get that. You don't want to be associated with this guy. But nonetheless, as a music fan and a historian, and also a student of history, I mean, it's very Stalinist, you know, it's like, it's like when Stalin, one of Stalin's right-hand guys would fall out of favor and be erased from the photos retroactively. I don't know. It just kind of gives me the creeps. And again, it's the prescience of KLF that they sort of anticipated this move and did it to themselves. And it's also weird uh, that so much of their music was so copyright and fringy that it still doesn't, you know, even, even though they re-released a, a bunch of it and put it up on Spotify, there's big gaps in their in their catalog because a lot of the rights, a lot of it is just illegal. And, and, and you and I both understand the difference between what you'll find on Spotify and what you'll find on YouTube, uh, just as far as, you know, what ended up not being legally cleared to be able to get up. And, uh, you know, there's there's lots of artists out there. They release uh, what they consider mixtapes. Uh, Charlie XCX puts out uh, just uh, amazing tracks that are all sampled rips from, from other mainstream pop songs that she would never get clearance on. And it just goes up on YouTube or it goes up on torrent sites doesn't exist in any kind of legal realm and uh you know i think it's it's fitting for klf these these kind of uh punk dance innovators to 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 be at the the forefront of that being some of the first guys to 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 be annihilated off of legal off of the legal systems and then for them to just take it and delete it all themselves and walk away yeah absolutely and and like like ryan said you can find a lot of the the rare stuff and the illegal stuff on YouTube, but it's a game of whack-a-mole. It's the, somebody puts it on YouTube. It's there for a while. Somebody notices it, who owns the rights, either takes the money or zaps it. So, you know, if you're interested in, in tracking this stuff down, this is a great era. And one I don't think will last. I think we're in a window where you'll be able to get this stuff. And I think the technology and the overall sort of cultural control is in the ascendant. So we're kind of at peak music right now when you have, possibly the most access to historical music we're ever going to have. And, and so um, take advantage, listen to this stuff, check it out and listen. And this sets up this era when, you know, you talked about David Morales a little bit earlier and these guys, uh, people like Paul Oakenfold, the remixing DJ becomes the star. You've got something like a scene, like the Manchester scene of the Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses that are just rock bands. 
fans. But because of Oakenfold's remixes, they're able to navigate the market in this dance crazy era, in the Acid House era, and seem probably hipper than they were. And this is the definitive example of the of the tail wagging the dog. This is Paul Oakenfold's perfecto mix of U2's Even Better Than the Real Thing. And this remix totally lapped the original version in the marketplace. Oakenfold's perfecto mix of U2's Even Better Than the Real Thing. And the irony here is just levels deep. I mean, U2 planned this stuff. They were doing this conceptual album at the time. They knew what they were doing, although I still doubt that The Edge was very happy when the Paul Oakenfold version makes the top 10 and the U2's version does not. Yeah, I mean, uh, wasn't this just on the edge of them kind of going full discotheque pop or uh, whatever that album was called. Yeah, I think it's Octung Baby, I want to say, but uh, not a U2 scholar. If we do an episode, I'll bone up on them, but they're a band that I used to just hate. I, I, I tried to like them for a while in the 80s and gave up by the 90s. And, and that's it seems like they were doing some interesting stuff by the early 90s, so maybe need to give them another chance. But apologies to the U2 fans out there. I mean, the, the simple reality is... Uh, you know, everything needed a dance remix. I mean, if you wanted your track to be played at the clubs, uh, you needed someone to go over it and give it a little bit of a bump up. Like it's just, it doesn't, uh, having, having played at enough clubs, uh, if you've got a moving dance floor and you drop a, a track that isn't made for the dance floor, you're going to, you're going to clear it unless you got some really big fans of that specific artist. So, uh, you know, that Paul Oakenfold remix of, of U2 is, you know, listening to it at home on, on, on computer speakers, uh, not the greatest, but if you tried to, if you tried to play one versus the other on the dance floor, you'd know the difference. And I think that's what it is with like a lot of these early nineties, mid nineties, uh, Madonna remixes and, 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 and all these Manchester, uh, indie, indie bands that are putting out these dance remixes is that you needed that dance remix. Otherwise it just wasn't going to get played out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and people like Michael Jackson, we're so into this, like his 1991 song Jam was remixed in 24 different versions. There's a house version, there's a hip hop version, a hip house version, et cetera, et cetera, a techno version. It's a um, really interesting period. And DJs like David Morales, who was Larry LeVan's successor at the Paradise Garage, um, he had early partnered with Cole and Clavellis, the CNC Music Factory guys, to form a group called Two Puerto Ricans, a Black Man and a Dominican that did a bunch of remixes instinctual by imagination was one the red zone remix series from a, a club morales worked at after he worked at the garage and in 1995 he was so big 
that Michael Jackson flew him out to the Michael Jackson studios to remix the track Scream. Like they're not going to ship the Michael Jackson track across the country. It's it's too important, too secure. So they pay the dude 80 grand, a rumored 80 grand to to cut this track and let him live in Neverland for three or four days while he's doing it. It's um, pretty much peak remixing, I'd say. Yeah, uh, in the in the era where you're getting these DJs to come in and remix and give them uh, give them that not only not only uh, an audio shine but a shine with their name as well. Nowadays, uh, you know who who even knows how much like Max Martin and all those guys make for being the uh, the god tier ghost producers for for all the the big pop stars. Yeah, it's uh, the business has changed enormously since the 90s, and hopefully we'll keep trying to chronicle it and make sense of it. But yeah, Max Martin, uh, that dude has his finger in a lot of pies, and 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 our guys Brewer and Broughton, you know, kind of wrap up the chapter with the discussion of some of the developments that's happened that happened between the first edition and the second, 1999 and 2014, and they talk about artists like uh, Paul Sebastian, aka Pure Science who is creating his own original compositions. But when he performs them live, he plays them like a DJ. He just uses that as source material, but then he adds new samples, new beats, um, remixes them live on the table. And that's the same thing that the wave of groups like Orbital and Underworld and Chemical Brothers and Fatboy Slim do when they, and Moby when they play live, quote unquote. It really is a live performance. It's just like you know we talked about a couple of weeks ago when you see – um, you know, any of the Belleville three or the, the original generation of techno DJs, those records don't really come alive if you just play the vinyl. You know, it's really when you see a DJ remixing them live in the club that they come alive and that and and through the big sound system and on the appropriate chemicals and in the right company, that's when the stuff really happens. And it's something you just can't recapture at home. It, this is not music for archivalists. This is music to be lived and to be experienced in the moment. Yeah, it feels like the the end of the chapter asks the question that no longer gets asked anymore, but but did back in the day. Can, can these DJs really be artists if they're not, quote unquote, playing real instruments or playing their music live in, in the traditional sense? And they go over some of the interesting turntable uh, instruments that are created to be able to control samples and beats and and lay out kind of how some of the bigger live PA performances uh, like Orbital Underworld, Chemical Brothers, all those guys, Daft Punk, what they're doing when they're live because they're not actually, you know, playing the synth lines themselves uh, because they're much too complicated. So it's it goes down to a MIDI click. And I, I remember this discussion back in the in the mid 90s with uh, when it was a real war between people who thought that you know unless unless the guitar was involved it was all fakery and i think i feel like it's just kind of an attempt to kind of uh lay the entire situation bare and, and try to give a little bit more credence to the dj as an artist and as a real musician because you know there is a lot of creativity and there is a lot of skill behind these live performances yeah absolutely it's it's kind of a a done argument and, and the forces of reaction lost yet again to the forces of progress. But I do remember in the nineties, I remember Al Jorgensen of ministry falling off stage at a show in Dallas and losing the mic trying to stage dive and his vocals, 
you know, continued unimpeded. And it was sort of a micro version of the Millie Vanilli scandal when they were performing live on TV and their their sample tape skipped. Maybe there was even a record, but, you know, that was a career ender for Millie Vanilli because as it turned out, they didn't even sing on the original record. It was just a blip for Al Jorgensen. Um, and I remember my brother seeing you too and being blown away around this period. And he was like, you know, I played guitar for 20 years. I can't figure out how one guitarist is making all that sound. And I was kind of like, because he's got a sampler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they got backing tracks, man. There's yeah. a whole bunch of backing tracks. I'm sure Al Jorgensen was also uh, doing something, but but that that Rob Zombie style growl, you know, you'll rip your throat out in, in three stops if you're actually doing that. So they got that. They got all the. They got entire very complex, very professional sounding backing track to to carry them over the the five or six intense things that they're doing on stage, and that's okay. Yeah, it's fine. That's what people expect. Britney Spears in Vegas, people don't want to hear her trying to sing live. They want to see the choreography. They want to see the dancing. They want to hear the music perfect, just like on the record. So it's just one of those things. And that pretty much wraps up our chapter on artist question mark from the book Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. I'm Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. And Ryan... Do we want to go next time and go back and cover trance, which we kind of skipped over and some of this trip hop and big beat stuff that they kind of give short shrift to in the book? Yeah, I'd love to lay all that out. Okay, we'll do that next time. And then the week after that, we'll return and talk about the outlaw era of British rave. So for Ryan Harkness, this is Nate Wilcox and Techno Roll. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate and Ryan will be back next week to continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. They'll be discussing the attempts to criminalize rave culture in the UK and US. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey, is published by Grove Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.